Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin, though, with the main event of the week for me. It's Chairman Powell, who took over, of course, from Janet Yellen this month, speaking before the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow, then the Senate Banking Committee two days later in what's known as the Humphrey Hawkins testimony. The first time since Powell was sworn in that we as uh, market observers and you as market participants get a chance to pass every single word from the new chairman of the Federal Reserve. Joining us to discuss is Steve Whiting, City Private Bank Global Chief Strategist, and he joins us here in New York City. Good morning and happy Monday to you, Steve. Happy Monday. Do they exist? I don't know. Maybe they exist. (laughs) Today it is. Let's Let's get up to speed on what to expect. Tuesday through to Thursday. What are we looking for from Chairman Powell, Steve? Well, I think it's what we can't anticipate that's interesting. You know, we have the policy report to Congress. We have the new projections. We've had the last Fed minutes. If there is any nuance as to how the chairman can uh, talk to us about viewing the outlook differently, you know, to a certain extent, they feel more confident about the course that they are on. But how much more confident? Does it make them actually think about changing uh, the policy view to one that's a little bit more robust? How uh, do they want to fight inflation? To what extent are they really playing the old game, which is pushing down inflation uh, at every time we see a a chance to do it? Or are we just satisfied to see it rise to the two, two and a half percent range, you know, that they say constitutes at least short term price stability? Steve, to what extent should they be trying to fight inflation at this point? Well, I think that most prudently, we have to care about what the next downturn will look like. And it's not to say that there's one immediately on the horizon. But if you are uh, essentially avoiding any financial excesses and you really think about what unwinding financial excesses does to the future uh, economic outlook and the inflation rate then, you don't want to have to fight a deep deflation later on yeah. in an economic downturn. So that's why, you know, this modest, mild policy snugging that we're doing here, which is really way below the standards of past cycles, it's half a historic tightening cycle. You know, it still matters to do this when inflation is low. And again, we can talk about how the December CPI print was half a percent. I don't think we're going to see every single month is going to be, you know, annualizing at four and a half percent. I think one thing that a lot of people are trying to get their heads around is how different Chairman Powell might be to former Chair Yellen. How do you expect the spread to widen? Is it going to narrow? How do we reconcile the difference? Because right now, I think overwhelmingly, the consensus of the amount of people that I speak to is typically, this is Yellen 2.0. That's Jerome Powell. Is that the way you see things or do you see things differently? Well, compared to the discussion um, of perhaps John uh, Taylor or Kevin Warsh, you know, some of the people who were brought up in the process of vetting a new Fed chair, uh, you know, we did have policy comments uh, from Jerome Powell in the past. You know, we've had him articulate uh, the Fed's view uh, of the economy and how monetary policy should unfold uh, in the past. And so we want to understand, you know, to what re- extent that reflects respect uh, for Yellen's views or uh, is really going to break new ground going forward. But I certainly feel a lot more comfortable when I did at the time of the appointment that we are not having a massive regime change in policy making yeah. here. The fact is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, John Wood, um, <clears throat> the, the fact is we don't know Jay Powell's 
monetary beliefs. We really haven't heard enough yet, have we? Well, look, we do have some specific monetary policy speeches. Uh, maybe this is not what he spent his life wanting to do, perhaps, but uh, we have seen yeah, that look he at follows. Me and John. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, with, you know what, though? Let me just jump in. I'm with Tom. This was the fi the quiet governor on the Fed board. Yes, we've got a couple of speeches, but his whole <coughs> modus operandi was just to go out there and not annoy anyone. He was a follower of whoever was leading. He was not out there as the leader on the Fed board, board making big speeches that would disrupt the flow of decision-making, like, say, Leo Brainerd. This guy was just the quiet governor of the Fed board. Well, that's board. our precedent then, right? So, you know, we are all of the view, uh, particularly... Uh, after seeing minutes, after seeing uh, the policy report to Congress, you know, that this is a, a Fed that is right now steering in the same direction uh, as the Yellen Fed. And that's what can get interesting about this, if there's something that we don't know about the whole policy approach here. Now, uh, certainly each uh, chairman will have to deal with challenges in their own particular way. There might be some underlying philosophy uh, that we don't know yet. Uh, and whether any of that will come out in this testimony will be quite interesting. But that's what's what makes this interesting. This is a first, you know, Humphrey Hawkins round uh, for a new Fed chair, and you guys yeah. should be all over it. How do we establish what the power put looks like? We've had the Greenspan put, Bernanke put, the Yellen put. Three bond managers speaking to me on Friday trying to work out whether we have a PAL put. Do we have right. a PAL put? Absolutely critical to sort of understand that in the sense that, you know, what is their reaction function? How protective of this economic expansion do they want to be right now? And look, I think if you were taking a look from the outside, you would say the U.S. economy uh, has been heading fully towards its potential. Sh we're showing signs of compensation gains that are accelerating, but from such a low level and after such a deep <clears throat> downturn almost a decade ago uh, that we ought to let this run yeah, some. One of your charms, Steve Whiting, is you actually pay attention to what corporations do. I mean, like what they say. What are they saying right now? As you look, conference call, I, the late uh, 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 John Farrow, the late Richard Yamaron of Bloomberg, was expert at this. Just listen to what people say and do. What are they saying besides giving token $1,000 raises to the troops and blathering about all the money they're going to save as a gross stub off the tax cut act? There's an underlying sense of optimism. If you just take a look at the various survey measures and you take a look, okay, there are lots of cautious comments, uh, as always, all the qualifiers that are needed for legal reasons yeah, around yeah, yeah, these yeah, things. Fair. But you take a look at any of these business confidence measures and you don't see something that is out of line. You know, what you'll hear with right. earnings reports that they think times will be strong for 2018 and 2019. Small businesses, large businesses. Oh. And the economy has not really stepped up to that level of confidence yet. Uh, but, you know, this, again, as we just said on the television, there's probably some place for it to meet in the middle because some of these readings on confidence are way off the charts. Steve Whiting, it's great to have you with us. The City Private Bank Global Chief Strategist. such an interesting concept. Karsten Bretzky with us with ING right now. What's the medium term to you? It's like a European phrase. Nobody in America is looking at the 
the medium term. <laughs> it's, it's an ECB term, isn't it? It's uh, monetary policy, price stability, only yeah. medium term. I was just thinking about on China, in Germany, we have Mrs. Merkel. She's already heading now for the for the fourth term. So this is already pretty okay, much that's a 16, 16 years, so it's pretty much Chinese. The medium term, John, is trying to get the Boston Red Sox to 4th of July. Is that right? That's the medium term. We're going to go and watch a game this uh, this summer. I'm looking forward to that. Shall I get you to the short term? The short term, what we're focusing on this week in Europe, mm. the Italian election this weekend. Carsten Brzezewski of, uh, of ING used to help me work out what was going on in Greece on almost a daily basis when I was back in London. Um, now you've got to work out what's going on in Italy. Now, it's an uncertain election in the minds of so many people, yet Italian bonds are pretty well bid and, and yields are lower by a considerable amount today. We're coming in by about four or five basis points ahead of an Italian election that may be bring someone that a number of years ago was incredibly anti-European, anti-Euro, into the, into the mix. Carsten, should I be worried about this weekend? Because it doesn't seem many people are. No, I think you shouldn't. Um, there are a couple of factors. And the, the Italian system is so complex and complicated. You know, they, they partly reformed their electorate system. Um, it, 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 a strange combination between uh, win, winner takes it all and proportionate uh, yeah. electorate system. But it simply means there will be no single party getting the absolute majority. So we're going to we're gonna get a, some kind of a coalition at, at best. So let's be clear here. For investors, what was a problem to many political analysts is that things can't get done in Italy. It's actually a benefit to the investor base because it doesn't matter who gets in, they won't get things done. Exactly. I think that right now is a benefit. Plus, there is no single party actually um, going for Italy leaving the Eurozone anymore. That is the fear that we had last year or a couple of years ago. So even this five-star movement party uh, actually is not arguing in favor of Italy leaving the Eurozone anymore. But part of the dynamic here of everyone, including myself, being calmer about Italy is they're generating some form of economic growth. As you look, Karsten, country to country, can you state that the United States of Europe has a better little g, that the economic growth nation to nation is actually stable and sustained and buoyant? It is, although when you look at Italy, Italy is still one of the laggards. And uh, so Italy is benefiting from the Eurozone cycle, but it's still lagging behind. And I think that that is, you know, on the one hand, it's positive for Italy right now, because also as soon as you have a job, you're not voting against the EU anymore. So this also means there is less support for, for anti-Euro parties in Italy. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Italy is off the hook. Carsten, how fragile is this recovery across the continent? A huge amount of optimism around it. I'm just wondering how fragile it actually is. Um, you know, I, I agree with you being, being a bit pessimistic, but I think it's not so fragile because it really it, it is broadening across sectors. We do have the export <coughs> sector, which, which is fine and which can even even digest a stronger euro. Yeah. We have investment picking up um, on, on the back of the ECB. The ECB is not going to change its policies anytime soon. We have consumption going on, so it's not so fragile. The perception of the ECB changing its policies may well change quite radically. There's a really interesting piece in the Financial Times over the weekend. I'm sure many of our listeners read it. It was lunch with Jens Weidmann of the Bundesbank. Lunch with Jens Weidmann. In the minds of many people, it's Weidmann running for president of the ECB. Now, if Jens Weidmann, the one individual that many people suspe suspect disagreed with Mario Draghi over the whatever-it-takes speech, the one individual on the ECB governing council that did that, if that individual then becomes the president of the ECB, what are we meant to think of that? Um... 
I think Weidmann is extremely good in also playing his role. Let's also be honest. He's not as dogmatic as his predecessors were, like Mr. Weber or Mr. Jürgen Stark. Um, so he's going to play his role. Even if he <clears throat> was to become the ECB president, I think he would uh, then also immediately shift hats and, and will become more pro-European. But let's not forget, he would only take office at the end yeah. of 2019. Where'd they go to lunch? The McDonald's by Liverpool I've forgotten. I've forgotten the name of the restaurant, but it was in Frankfurt. Oh, it was in Frankfurt. It was in Frankfurt. Yeah. You should read the piece. It was quite interesting. I, the shortest lunch I've ever had in Frankfurt was two and a half hours. Really? The shortest I'm lunch? At, I'm looking why, at my Why did you go going, for lunch? I used to go there all the time. I usually struggle with place, to find a place to eat in Frankfurt. That's true. No, that's very true, folks. That, John, that's, that's Custom, why is it so true. difficult to find a place to eat in Frankfurt? <clears throat> really true. Because Germans are not into eating. So this is the... There, there, <laughs> Are, this is not. Oh, they don't no, want to go oh, out for long lunches. lunches. This, is, this is why we need Italy in the eurozone. <laughs> that would be true. I want to look at the polarity here, and you can do that on the Bloomberg, folks. The unemployment rate of Germany is five point four percent. The unemployment rate of Italy is in the vicinity of eleven percent. At the at the end of the day, that's the tension. I mean, we have the same tension in the United States, but it's just different, isn't it? The tension will go on. I think that's the whole thing. When you look at so again, I think Italy is not the big risk in the short term, not not for markets, but Italy economically and economic policy wise is an issue because we will get this discussion on whether Italy will be allowed to invest and to spend more. And when you look at it, 130 percent debt to GDP ratio, I think minus uh, or two percent uh, um, deficit ratio. So Italy will again bring this this very sensitive issue back on the table in Europe. Can we invest more? Can we have higher deficits to increase investment and spending? Well, is it Macron's Europe or, or Merkel's Europe? And who exactly. gives them the green light? Um, it will be both. The interesting thing is that Mrs. Merkel, again, is uh, is re renewing herself again. Um, so she, she just yesterday, she, um, she come up with, uh, with a couple of new posts, uh, new young politicians coming up there. Um, it now, will be a combination. It will be a Macron-Merkel Europe. How is Mr. Trump perceived now in Europe? We've had very little of this analysis in the United States because we're so focused on domestic uh, Trumpian issues. But... Has there been a shift in how the president is perceived across your Europe, Karsten? Honestly, no. I think if you really want to score high in media or with clients, you do some Trump bashing. Always, always falls well in Europe. I think there is there uh, there are let's hardly let's, any. That's fascinating. Now, now here in the United States of America, the Trump bashing seems to play well with the mainstream media. The left-wing media outlets with investors they don't care where you stand politically ultimately they want to make money cast and now you use the word investors want to hear that why do investors want to hear that why do they want politically charged rhetoric because i think in 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 europe you see that this um divide between the u.s and and europe also between economic policies mm -hmm. between the u.s and and europe uh, is um um, so many people, also investors, when you talk to continental European investors right now, they feel um, reminded of Reaganomics. One of the themes that we have here, Carson, before we let you go, is the idea of huge fiscal policy, non-austerity in the United States, which will lead to a diminished lower net export statistic. What did you learn about export-import dynamics amid EU austerity? Did, did the trade dynamic actually assist the domestic economy? 
It does um, in two ways. Actually, extra euro. So really, we see that all countries are benefiting from the weaker euro that we had so far. Italy is actually one of the main beneficiaries. Italy is exporting more in absolute terms than France does. Um, and, wow. at this, and at the same time, at the wow. same time, we also do see that uh, trade within the eurozone the, countries is improving. So repeat that again. That's so important. Italy in absolute. What, in what absolute, do you mean by absolute terms? In, in, units? In, just in units. Trade volume, volume, volume. It's exporting more than France. I would, I, th even that's though having you here is fabulous. I would have never guessed that, John Farrell. I didn't know that either. Do you know that what tipped the needle there was the Gucci store? Is that just you? Down below the is that you? <laughs> is that you? Is that you? I suspect they're not for you, but I imagine it might you got be. That right. It might be your. You're purchases. not going to see me in the fur line, <laughs> Colin. Don't even start. Colin of the twins wants me to. Try out the fur line. Okay. Carsten Bresky, the so We've got to say thanks to Carsten. Uh, and yeah. then we can talk about the bill at the end of the month for you. He is the senator from Cincinnati. Rob Portman will always be from his Cincinnati. But now, of course, his representation uh, of all of his state of Ohio, uh, without question, a vice presidential candidate in consideration. But he said, I need to stay in a Republican Senate. The senator joins us here in our New York studios. You're in Cincinnati, Senator Portman, March 2nd, five miles south of Michigan in Holland, Ohio. There will be a meeting of the Friends of the NRA. Right now, you're in the crosshairs of the NRA. You've been a big, uh, uh, they've given you a lot of money within the close contest of Ohio. You, Senator uh, Governor Scott in uh, Florida, everyone has to adjust. How will Rob Portman adjust to what we've seen in Florida? Well, we have a need to look at this in a very broad way. Let's, let's face it. Um, in Florida, to talk about the tragedy there, uh, so many missed signals, unbelievable this yes. morning, hearing about more. Uh, so it was avoidable in the sense, Tom, that law enforcement had been doing their job. Uh, you know, this particular young man mm -hmm. would not have been in that position. Even the FBI was involved, so it wasn't, it wasn't just local law enforcement. Uh, but the broader issues include mental health, and we have people falling between the cracks. As you know, I do a lot of work in that area, and in op opioids, which is related, uh, with regard to Background checks, we need to tighten them up. Uh, I am I'm actually sponsoring legislation to do that. I think Congress is likely to move towards something that says people who shouldn't get a gun need to be stopped through that process, and it's not happening now, partly because but, the information is not coming in. Senator, you represent the cultural divide of this debate, the toughest parts of Cleveland, the tough parts of Cincinnati, and yet the fabric of hunting America. And Ohio, once again, provides yep. that tapestry of America. How does this nation come to grips with the toughest parts well, of I, Cleveland and the fields of Western Ohio? Yeah, well, you know, in, in Ohio, uh, there are a lot of people who feel very strongly about the Second Amendment. I believe it's, it's a right that we can preserve and at the same time find that balance uh, with regard to background checks, with regard to things like bump stocks with regard to uh, things we look at the age. So I think there are things that, that can and should be done. I, I will say that with regard to downtown Cleveland, because you mentioned that, downtown Cincinnati and downtown Columbus and so on, there is a lot of gun violence. Uh, it doesn't get nearly the uh, exposure that these horrific school shootings get, uh, but it's happening every day. And it, it tends to be, as you know, about mm -hmm. 
80 to 90 percent of it probably is with a handgun, and yeah. it tends to be with drugs and crime uh, related to gangs. I mean, that's pr- that's primarily what I hear from law enforcement. And that's an issue that, you know, again, I spend a lot of time on this issue in terms of the drug side of it, which is driving a lot of this. We have to get to the bottom of all these things because unless you do that, uh, you will continue to see this mm-hmm. this violence perpetrated. And it's, it is the biggest issue in terms of gun violence is the gangs and usually drug-related right. yeah. and turf battles and so on. So when we focus on things like stopping this drug epidemic that has now hit my state, it does have an effect as well. Senator, help a guest of this country understand how preserving the Second Amendment is compatible with allowing the sale of AR-15s to the general public. I'm sorry, say it again, Jonathan. Help me understand as a guest of this country how preserving that amendment is compatible with allowing the sales of AR-15s to member of the general public. Well, I think I think there are people that own those weapons who would say it, it's it, it is compatible. But what I'm saying is there's a balance here, and so I, I all I can say is um, you know I think Congress ought to look at that issue. We ought to look at the issue of, of age because uh, at 18 you can purchase a rifle, whereas at 21 uh, you can purchase a handgun. So there are there are things that can should be done. I think there you will see some of that. The bump stock issue is related yeah. to that. But the response I often hear in this country is always more guns. More guns is the solution, that you need more guns. Ultimately, the teachers now need to have guns. That's an yeah. argument some people well, are pursuing. When is the answer not more guns? Yeah, well, I, I didn't give that answer this you morning. You didn't. You but, didn't. But, but I will say have. we need to harden our schools. Uh, there's no question about it. And uh, again, I, looking at the tragic situation in Florida, um, you know, that, that school, you know, should have had. Right the ability to protect those students better. So that is part of the answer as well. In the time that we have left, an update from Rob Portman on the president's initiatives or lack of initiatives to help you with the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. in Ohio. You and the woman from New Hampshire have provided national leadership on this. You're not getting help from the White House yet, are you? Well, we we have. The president signed legislation recently, for instance, to um, provide funding for additional uh, monitors and screeners for fentanyl coming into this country. And he has supported um, additional funding for prevention, education, as well as treatment and recovery. In our budget bill that just passed, as you know, Tom, we got unprecedented amounts of funding for that purpose, $3 billion this year and $3 billion next year. Uh, we are now working on additional legislation to the Comprehensive mm-hmm. Addiction Recovery Act that, that I co-authored to ensure that funding is properly spent. In other words, we wanted to go to evidence-based programs. I left one a couple of days ago in Ohio that's very promising, uh, some federal money uh, you know, that, that I supported went into this project. Mm-hmm. It then helped to leverage a lot of private sector funding, and it is a, right. an emergency room where people <clears throat> that overdose are going to come to, yeah. and there's a treatment center right, right there. Eighty percent of the people who have come to this emergency room in the last month, 103 people have gone into treatment. That's a key because that gap mm-hmm. between getting someone – into an emergency room, saving their lives through this miracle drug Narcan that reduces the uh, that reverses the effects of overdoses. Then people go well, back home; they don't get the help they need. So okay. this is one of the things we should do. Senator Portman, thank you for the visit. We look forward to speaking to you again in our Washington studios. Rob Portman, thanks, son. from Ohio. It is a book that would be wildly anticipated at any moment. Ben Steele, of course, smart writing for the Council on Foreign Relations. The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, 
but has become particularly timely is all of each and every political persuasion uh, look at the process of diplomacy, the process of the projection of the United States of America in 2018. We revisit the starvation of Europe in 1947. If you need a brief on this, all you need to know is Audrey Hepburn barely made it out of the Netherlands in this starvation. Ben Steele, congratulations on the huge effect of the Marshall Plan, your book. Tell us about how bad it was in Europe when George Marshall and President Truman stepped in. The New York Times, Tom, referred to uh, Europe as, quote-unquote, the dark continent in the early years after the the war. Things were truly savage. It wasn't just um, uh, the physical destruction of the war. All the complex economic relations that we take for granted today between country and city, between businesses and consumers, between monetary authorities and the the general public, everything had broken down. And, um, you know, there was a real desire among the populace for for big change, Uh, big changes in economic policy. We saw that in Britain with nationalization and the communist parties, particularly in Italy and France, were getting very powerful. My window of George. Marshall, who, full disclosure, folks, was revered in the Keene household, of General Marshall is from Edward Larrabee in his magnificent book of 30 years ago on the various and sundry generals helping FDR. There's a scene in the Larrabee book where Marshall decides the best way to help FDR is to be visible but really stay out of the way until called upon. How did he go from that general in the war to a secretary of state saying, let's go? This is this is Marshall at its at his best, uh, Tom. Um, in the year before he became Secretary of State in 1946, he had planned to go into retirement and perhaps write his memoirs. He had been offered up to um, a half a million dollars to to uh, write his memoirs. You know that's a fortune in today's money. Uh, but he turned it down when President Truman came to him and said, "I want you to go to uh, China uh, and try to find a way to make peace between the nationalists and the communists." That mission was a failure, Tom. But he learned a lot from it. And when he became Secretary of State in 1947, and when he saw that there was no prospect for getting a cooperative agreement going forward on Germany with the Soviets, he came home from Moscow in April of 1947 and said, the patient is sinking while the doctors deliberate. We can no longer wait for the Soviets to come around. We have to fix this problem ourselves. Within the book is a different media. And without question, the center tendency of that study is Walter Littman. I'm going to suggest, Ben Steele, that a lot of our listening audience today doesn't know who Walter Littman is. Who is he, and is there a proxy in 2018 America? You know, there probably isn't today, Tom. I mean, Walter Lippmann was an extremely influential journalist in the in the 1940s. The uh, administration took him extremely seriously. George Kennan, who was the father of the um, uh, new uh, early Cold War policy of containment, containing the Soviet Union, had long-running disputes uh, yeah. uh, with with Lippmann. Um, he was extremely influential, and there's no doubt that he did push uh, uh, policy uh, in the Truman administration in various directions throughout those early Cold War years. Well, within that, and I guess this jumps it forward, folks, Ben Steele, and, and with your expertise on modern diplomacy, could the Marshall Plan 
occur in today's media maelstrom? You know, I don't think so, Tom. Um, you know, one of the most remarkable Jeez. legacies of the Marshall Plan is the endless desire to repeat it. In the past five years alone, uh, we've had yeah. proposals for Marshall Plans in Ukraine and Greece and Southern Europe and North Africa and Gaza and most recently uh, in Syria. But nothing like it has ever taken hold. I should emphasize that we spent over $200 billion, Tom, on reconstruction aid in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's about 50 percent more than we spent in the totality of martial aid in current dollars. And we have so little to show for it. And that's really because one of the great successes of the Marshall Plan was also providing physical security for Europe in the form of NATO which um, uh, we helped create in 1949. One of the big things we do here is try to throw books at younger people and say, shut up and read it. And the Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, is official certified headbanger here, uh, weighing in some 400 pages. And it's really an easy read of the time. How would you frame this to an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations? They've got 70 books Uh, You know, Foreign Affairs Magazine is going to come out with another 15 books this next issue that they have to read. How do you say to a young kid, shut up and read the Marshall Plan? What's the lesson here for young kids in international relations? I think young people today, Tom, are extremely interested in current affairs. They're certainly interested in politics in the United States now, which is, uh, you know, a a very unusual and a historical perspective. Um, And one of the things that comes across very clearly in this story, Tom, is that the early Cold War conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union was fundamentally about geography and not about ideology. It wasn't about Marxism versus capitalism. Mm -hmm. In 1946, Stalin is trying to uh, push territorial claims in Iran and Turkey. In 1947, he's trying to um, push into Western Germany and cement his buffer zone in Eastern Europe. And really, Tom, that's the root of the conflict between the United States and Russia today in Europe. Russia is extremely concerned about the eastward expansion of NATO and the European Union, and we have grossly underestimated Russia's reaction. Well, this has been written up in your foreign affairs magazine. John Mearsheimer of uh, the University of Chicago has made very clear that we underestimate this eastern thrust. Was the Marshall Plan with the planes historically flying into Berlin and all that, the Berlin blockade, and that was that considered an eastern thrust by Stalin? Well, it's important to recognize, uh, Tom, that uh, Stalin, in fact, implemented the Berlin blockade to strangle Germany in 1949, fundamentally as a way to convince the Americans not to leave Berlin, although he very much would have liked that, but to stop trying to create a Western German state. He was extremely concerned about the threat of um, uh, a democratic capitalist Western Germany effectively under American control. He considered that a a security threat to his new buffer zone in Eastern Europe. Ben, to bring the Marshall Plan forward, and you touch on this in your final chapter, the echoes of the Marshall Plan on, is our multilateralism and our collegiality, is it just exhausted because on a calculus basis we got to the best marginal effect of everyone being together? Did we just finally wear out that 40-year trend that we had of GATT and the rest of it? 
I think you may have hit up the crux of the problem, uh, Tom. In, in the early post-war years from 1945 to 1949, the United States created all of the major institutions of what we now call the post-war liberal order. The United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, the predecessor organizations, the European Union, and the World Trade Organization. Uh, um, these things were all created in this uh, short span of four years after the Second World War, and I think we've taken them to for granted, perhaps, too long. And now, of course, we've got a, a transactional president who likes to do deals and thinks that he can do better deals. Mm. He can do better for the United States than the WTO and, and NATO and wants to renegotiate all these things. And I think what he's perhaps losing is the enormous influence we've had in the world from our soft yeah. power, from our b ability to project values that were seen as being universally attractive. Yeah. Ben Steele, thank you so much. The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, can't say enough about it, and the photos are extraordinary, and it is hugely appropriate that the final photo of the book is of Adenauer of Germany. Ben Steele with the Council on Foreign Relations, the must-read, The Marshall Plan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.